And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is January the 11th. 11th day of the year. 354 days remain till the year's over with. <clears throat> and it's going quickly. Um... On this day in 532, the Nika riots took place in Constantinople. This was a quarrel between supporters of different chariot teams, the Blues and the Greens, in the Hippodrome, and it escalated into a full brawl. Kind of like our Super Bowl games do. 630, the conquest of Mecca. The Prophet Muhammad and his followers conquered the city, and the Quraysh Association of Clans surrenders. 1055, Theodora is crowned empress of the Byzantine Empire. That was the Eastern Roman Empire. Don't you know? Uh, 1569 saw the first recorded lottery in England. The uh, 1654, the uh, Arayuko War, the Spanish armies defeated by local Mapuche villages tries to cross the Bueno River in southern Chile. That's basically a well-trained army defeated by militia. Not good. The 1759, the first American life insurance company, the Corporation for Relief of Poor and Distressed Presbyterian Ministers and the Poor and Distressed Widows and Children of the Presbyterian Ministers, incorporated in Philadelphia. The... um, 1779, Ching Tang Komba is crowned King of Manipur. 1787, William Herschel discovers Titania and Oberon, the two moons of Uranus. 1805, the Michigan Territory is created. 1861, Alabama succeeds from the United States on this date. 1863, the three-day Battle of Arkansas Post concludes that General John McLernan and Admiral David Dixon Porter captured Fort Hinman and seized control of the Arkansas River for the Union. 1863 also saw CSS Alabama encounters and sinks the USS Hatteras off Galveston, Rideouse, in Texas. CSS Alabama was a, uh, a raider, and it had a hell of a career until the end of the war. Eventually, I think it was scuttled by its own crew after the war ended. Uh, I'm sorry, sank uh, June 19th, 1864. It was a sloop of war built for the Confederate States Navy at Birkenhead on the River Mercy opposite Liverpool. It was a successful commerce raider, attacked Union merchant naval ships over a two-year career. Sunk in June of 1864 by the USS Kearsarge at the Battle of Cherbourg outside the port of Cherbourg, France. Um, one of them, I don't remember which one it was, survived the war and was scuttled by its own crew. 1908, the Grand Canyon National Monument is created. The uh, 1912, immigrant textile workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts go on strike when wages are reduced. And that was a result of a mandated shortening of the work week. Uh, 1914, the the Carduk flagship of the Canadian Arctic Expedition sank after being crushed by ice. 
1917, the Kingsland Munitions Factory explosion occurs as a result of sabotage. 1923, occupation of the Ruhr. Troops from France and Belgium occupy the Ruhr area and force Germany to make its World War I reparation payments. The uh, 1927, Louis B. Mayer, head of the film studio Metro-Golden-Mayer, announces the creation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences at a banquet in Los Angeles, California. 1935, Amelia Earhart becomes the first person to fly solo from Hawaii to California. Eventually, uh, in her round-the-world trip, she vanished. 1942, Japanese forces capture Kuala Lumpur, the capital of the Federated Malay States. Also on that same date in 42, Japanese forces attack uh, Tarakan in Borneo, Netherlands, uh, Indies. And in 43, the Republic of China agrees to the Sino-British New Equal Treaty and the Sino-American New Equal Treaty. Also in 43, Italian-American anarchist Carlo Tresca is assassinated in New York City. And uh, 1946, Envar Haksa, Secretary General of the Communist Party of Albania, declares the People's Republic of Albania with himself as head of state. Well, 2020 saw the uh, COVID-19 pandemic in Hubei. Municipal health officials in Wuhan announced the first recorded death from COVID-19. The... Uh, still no official determination of the cause. Everyone knows what it was, but nobody wants to say because that would be racist, don't you know? All right. We've been in the last few shows talking about uh, vampires, werewolves, and things go bump in the night. Now, I did a book called Beyond Roswell. And it's about, um, well, there's been a lot of talk about UFO involvement with the affairs of the human race. And the truth of many of these incidents has long been in question. But there's one instance where there were thousands of witnesses to the presence of UFOs, and that was in the skies of Los Angeles in 1942. That was the famous Battle of Los Angeles. Mistake of a Japanese aircraft, numerous military units fired hundreds of live rounds at these mysterious crafts. And even now, there are questions as to what really happened that night. So, I did the book, Beyond Roswell, talking about uh, incidents other than Roswell. We even did the first season of a television series about it. Um, it's going to air, I don't know when or, or where, but it was uh, fascinating to make. Now, I did the book in 2016. And there's going to be a, another volume um, as part of the Occult Connection series. That was a book I did in... Uh, I started it in 79 and finished it in... 89, maybe? And it's become a classic. I saw on the internet that was going for... Uh, Autographed first editions are going for $2,300. And they reported I was dead, which was a surprise to me. Nobody tells me anything. Um, you know, the, the title Beyond Roswell 
needs to be addressed. A lot of folks seem to be of the opinion that the crash of a purported unidentified flying object at Roswell was a somehow unique and special occurrence. In fact, the crash of a UFO isn't really unique as there's been several of the crashes throughout history. And it's going to surprise and shock a lot of folks to find out the UFO crash celebrated at Roswell didn't actually take place in or even near the community of Roswell. I spoke there for 10 years before uh, John Smith decided I was uh, not politically acceptable because I routinely outsold him. Uh, and he uh, he's used to being the king, don't you know? Everybody should bow down to the great Don Smith. You know, the famous crash in 47 called the Roswell Crash actually occurred near the village of Corona, New Mexico. According to Wikipedia.com, Corona is a village in Lincoln County located on U.S. Route 54. 2000 census said the population was 165. Corona was the closest habitation to a purported UFO crash which was about 30 miles to the southeast. The rancher that found the crash first came to Corona to report it to a few residents before going to Roswell to tell officials there about what had crashed on his ranch. You know, a lot of folks who called into my radio talk show seem to be of the opinion that there were actually three UFO crashes in 1947. The planes of the Augustine, Corona, and Roswell. They normally express surprise to find out the Corona incident and the Roswell incident are actually the same thing. Much of the confusion seems to be that Stanton Friedman has written about Roswell and also co-wrote a book called Crash and Corona. Unless one reads this material carefully, you come away with the idea he's actually talking about two different crashes. He actually does discuss two separate UFO crashes, but the second one is the incident the planes of St. Augustine which is a very interesting tale that's not talked about very much. And of course, for every discussed crash, there are an army of doubters who claim that it was all a hoax. Of course, what uh, supposed hoaxers have to gain is puzzling, but there it is. Uh, quite often, all they want is their 15 minutes of fame as being the person that proved that whatever the event was, was a hoax. So... When I wrote Beyond Roswell, we discussed the major UFO crashes. The dilettantes, unfortunately, have taken over the events in Roswell and continue to push their tired old books as if it's somehow something new. So you need to read the material, make your own conclusions. And while there are millions of individuals who firmly believe in the existence of UFOs, the consensus of opinion is anything but in agreement regarding what exactly flies in our skies. The UFO world is actually a small one with a few serious researchers and a number of ego-driven individuals who care more about enhancing their own reputations than they do about letting the public know what's really taking place. I could give you a half a dozen names off the top of my head of the dilettantes. For example, there's one that never goes any place without his publicist so that everybody knows who he is. You know, in order to thoroughly understand a subject, a wise researcher wants to study a phenomena from all sides. UFO field, it's necessary to study many encounters and compare both the similarities as well as the differences, not concentrate on just one. However, there are also those who claim to be serious researchers uh, who spend their careers concentrating on just one event, 
such as the UFO crash at Roswell. These individuals are generally dilettantes who strut around touting their one or two or three books that purport to be discussions of major discoveries, but which are actually just reports of what various people have said to them. You take these so-called researchers outside their comfort zone and they attack anything new and different and any, that anybody else has to report. As an example, I wrote a book regarding the untold stories behind many of the alien abductions and because it was a scantily clad young woman on the cover, it was called Sensual Alien Encounters. One dilettante decided it was somehow pornographic and demanded it be removed from the Roswell UFO Museum bookstore. Of course, he never read the book, had no idea what it was about, but he was positive he knew better than anybody else what the public wanted or needed to see. It's unfortunate that such people are actually listened to by those who should make up their own minds. Really a ploy to have his own tired old books put more into the public eyes. My books routinely outsold his many times over. And this same dilettante was one of those who in Mexico, a great fanfare, personally identified the mummy of an Indian girl as that of an alien. He was also compensated in an amount far more than he or his opinion was ever worth. Amazingly, this major misidentification doesn't seem to have damaged his career, though a close examination of the so-called alien figure in question would have revealed the, the card attached to it, properly identifying the Indian girl as a human Native American. But such is the impact that massive egos have on those who are less well-informed on the topic in question. Also be mentioned that it was Albert Einstein who said that uh, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. We've got certainly some very high ignorant people in the UFO field. And this describes this dilettante's attitude exactly. But let's look at what's known about the incident that has become world famous. Now, most folks believe the crash, as I said, happened in or near the town of Roswell. But the unidentified flying object crashed on a ranch northwest of Roswell sometime during the first week of July in 1947. Seems to be no first-hand data giving the exact day and time of the crash. But it's been estimated by the uh, individual who uh, actually found the wreckage. And this was a rancher by the name of W.W. W. Mac Brazil. said he found the debris from the crash saucer over a wide area as he and a companion, uh, the son of Floyd and Loretta Proctor, rode their horses out to check on a flock of sheep after a fierce thunderstorm that had occurred the night before. Brazil said they, as they rode along, he began to notice unusual pieces of what seemed to be metal debris scattered over a large area. Now, I've, as a result of a lot of questioning, I discovered that there were one or two young Mexican uh, boys with Brazil and Proctor that day who were actually so scared by the ensuing actions of the U.S. military, they went back to Mexico and refused to be interviewed about the issue. They even refused to come back to the U.S., Further investigation of these pieces of wreckage um, resulted in uh, Brazil reporting he saw a shallow trench several hundred feet long that had been gouged into the ground by something that had to be fairly large and hit with a lot of force. Brazil later said he was struck by the unusual properties of the debris, and after dragging large pieces of it to a shed, he took some over to shell the proctors. 
When interviewed, Mrs. Proctor, a letter moved from a somewhat remote ranch to a house closer to town, said she remembers Brunswick showing up with a strange material and a story of finding it scattered over a large area of the range. Now, the Proctors also told Brazil he might be holding wreckage from an alien spacecraft as there had been a number of UFO sightings reported in the U.S. that summer. He also showed that it could be wreckage of a government project as there had been a number of those tested in the Mexico desert during the, the war. After some discussion between he and the Proctors, he decided he should report the incident to Chavez County Sheriff George uh, Wilcox. A day or two later, Brazel drove into Roswell, which is the county seat, and reported the incident to the sheriff. After examining the pieces of metal that Brazel gave him, uh, Sheriff Wilcox decided this was a matter for the Army and reported it to Major Jesse Marcel, intelligence officer for the 509th Bomb Group, stationed at Roswell Army Airfield. Now, the uh, at that point in time, the Air Force was not yet in existence. <coughs> it was the Army Air Corps. Uh, the um, September 16th, 1947 was the actual creation of the Air Force. But the Army still has more uh, aircraft than the Air Force does. <coughs> Excuse me. Later research revealed that, as in many other cases, uh, Military radar had been tracking an unidentified flying object in the skies over southern New Mexico for four days prior to the alleged crash. And on the night of July 4th, 1947, radar indicated the object had gone down about 30 to 40 miles northwest of Roswell during a massive thunderstorm. Later speculation that maybe the craft was struck by lightning, which had actually caused the crash. Another individual came forward later and claimed to be an eyewitness to the crash. His name was William Woody, lived east of Roswell. When he was questioned, he said he remembered being outside with his father the night of July 4th, 1947, when he saw a brilliant object plunge to the ground. Of course, at the time, neither he nor his father had any idea what that object might be. It's always so interesting to note that even though the men in question was somewhat, uh, the area in question was somewhat remote from town, there seems to have been a fairly large number of witnesses to the event. There have long been reports of archaeological students on field exercises that saw the crash and rushed to the site. Thought it was an airplane. Shortly after they arrived, it was reported that soldiers arrived and chased their body away. The debris site reported it was closed for several days while the wreckage was cleared up by the military. Woody and his father tried to locate the area of the crash they had seen. Woody said they were um, stopped by military personnel and ordered them to get out of the area. Well, Major Marcel, after receiving the call from Wilcox and a subsequent orders from Colonel William Blanchard, uh, the 509th commanding officer, went to investigate Brazel's report and see if he, they could identify the craft that was said to have crashed. Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cavett, a senior counterintelligence corps agent assigned to the Roswell Army Airfield, followed the rancher to his home place. Spent the night there, and then Marcel inspected a large piece of debris that Brazel had dragged from the pasture to his house. Monday morning, July 7th, Marcel got his first look at the debris field. He later remarked that something must have exploded above the ground and fell as the debris covered an extensive area. As Brazel Cavett Marcel inspected the field, Marcel was able to determine which direction it came from and which direction it was heading. 
Later said the debris were scattered in a pattern. You could tell where it started out and where it ended by how it was thinned out. According to Marcel, the debris was strewn over a wide area, I guess maybe three-quarters of a mile long and a few hundred feet wide. Scattered in the debris were small bits of metal Marcel later subjected to a cigarette lighter to see if it would burn. Along with the metal, Marcel described finding a weightless I-beam-like structures with three-eighths inch by one-quarter inch. None of them very long that would neither bend nor break. Some of these I-beams are had indecipherable characters along the length and two colors. Marcel later described metal debris, the thickness of tinfoil that was also indestructible. He said if you, you could fold it up, but as soon as you let go, it went back to its original shape. After gathering enough debris to fill his staff car, Marcel decided to stop by his home on the way back to the base so he could show his family this unusual debris. He frankly never seen anything like it. I knew his son... We used to get together every year at the Roswell event. Uh, we were both speakers before I became politically unacceptable. And um, his son had very vivid memories of the debris. Uh, Marcel said, I don't know what we were picking up. I still don't know what it was. It couldn't have been part of an aircraft, not part of any kind of weather balloon or experimental balloon. I've seen rockets sent up in the White Sands testing grounds. Definitely wasn't part of an aircraft or a missile or a rocket. Marcel's son, Jesse Jr., had the opportunity to examine much of the material his father brought home. Years later, under hypnosis conducted by Dr. John Watkins in May of 1990, Jesse Marcel Jr. remembered being awakened by his father that night and following him outside to help carry in a large box filled with the debris. Once inside, they emptied the contents of the debris onto the kitchen floor. Jesse Jr. described the lead foil and the, the I-beams. Under hypnosis, he recalled the writing on the I-beams as uh, purple. Strange, never something like it. Different geometric shapes, leaves and circles. Later uh, designed models of these I-beams are made available at the uh, Roswell UFO Museum. Under questioning, he said the symbols were shiny purple and they were small. And there were a lot of separate figures. Under hypnosis, he also remembered that his father had been said the debris came from a flying saucer. Jesse Jr. also remembered he had asked his father what a flying saucer is, and he said he didn't know what a flying saucer was. His father replied that it was a ship. Major Marcel reported he found what he found, uh, Colonel Blanchard, showing him pieces of the wreckage, none of which looked like anything Blanchard had ever seen before. According to Major Marcel, neither had any... Neither had ever seen anything like these uh, unusual fragments. Well, there have long been rumors that bodies of aliens were recovered at the crash site. Several individuals that had come on the crash vehicle later reported they had seen small bodies that appeared to be dead occupants lying near the craft. Of course, the military has never confirmed this. However, there were a number of witnesses to the presence of alien bodies who seemed to have slipped under the government's radar, so to speak. Glenn Dennis, a young mortician working at the Ballad uh, Funeral Home in Roswell, got some curious calls one afternoon in July of 47 from the Roswell Army Airfield Morgue. According to the phone call, the base's mortuary officer was trying to get a hold of some small, child-sized, hermetically sealed coffins and also wanted to know how to preserve bodies that had been exposed to the elements for a few days and how to avoid contaminating the tissue. Dennis later said... 
That evening, he drove to the base hospital where he saw large pieces of wreckage with strange engravings on one of the pieces sticking out of the back of a military ambulance. Nobody seemed to want to discuss what the wreckage had come from. He entered the hospital and was visiting with a nurse he knew when suddenly he was threatened by military police and forced to immediately leave the building. Next day, Dennis said he again met with the nurse who told him about strange-looking bodies that were discovered with the wreckage and even drew pictures of them for him on a prescription pad. According to Dennis, within a few days, she was unexpectedly transferred to England, and her whereabouts are frankly still unknown, though there have long been questions about the name of the nurse and whether or not she even existed. And Dennis didn't help matters when he changed her name several times in the retelling of the story. You know, steps are being taken to remove, to ensure the word didn't leak out about the bodies of the crash. And the army came down with an unusually heavy hand on this particular situation. At 11 a.m., July 8, 1947, Lieutenant Walter Hout, Roswell Army Airfield Public Information Officer, furnished a press release that Blanchard ordered him to write stating that the wreckage of a crashed disc had been recovered and was in the possession of the military. And according to a later statement of Lieutenant Howe, Colonel Blanchard actually dictated the contents of the, the famous or rather infamous press release about a flying saucer being found by the U.S. military. According to the newspaper, the Roswell Daily Record, July 8, 1947, Lieutenant Howe gave copies of the press release to the two radio stations of both the local newspapers. By 2.26 p.m., the story was on the Associated Press. The headline was, The Army Air Forces Here Today Announced a Flying Disc Had Been Found. Now, as calls began to pour in to the base from all over the world, Lieutenant Robert Shur uh, Shirky watched his MPs carried a large amount of material from their carry-alls and loaded the wreckage onto a C-54 from the 1st Transport Unit. Get a better look. Shirky uh, stepped around Colonel Blanchard, who was... Irritated with all the calls coming into the base, Blanchard decided uh, to travel out to the debris field and left instructions anybody calling him was to be told he'd gone on leave. The um, yeah, Blanchard had sent Major Marcel to Fort Worth Army Airfield, uh, later Carswell uh, Air Force Base, to Port Brigadier General Roger Ramey, commanding officer of the 8th Air Force. Marcellus debriefed the general on the UFO situation and also took with him the debris he had uh, collected. Now, Marcel told how years later he had taken some of the debris into Ramey's office to show him what had been found, and the materials displayed on Ramey's desk for the general to see when he returned from a meeting the exact location of the debris field, so he and Marcel went to a map room down the hall, leaving the debris unguarded on the general's desk. But when they came back to the general's office, the wreckage from the crashed saucer been, uh, that had been placed on the desk was gone, and a weather balloon was spread out on the floor. Major Charles Cashin took credit for the now-famous photo of Marcel with the weather balloon in Ramey's office. But it was seen this really wasn't the case. New information has come to light about this particular photograph. Now, it's been reported in the press that there was no UFO, as Ramey said he recognized remains as part of a weather balloon. British General Thomas Dubois, the chief of staff for the 8th Air Force, later reported it was a cover story, the whole balloon part of it. That was the part of the story we were told to give to the public, and 
news, and that was it. According to the Roswell Daily Record of John July 1947, that afternoon, Hout's original press release was rescinded. Officers from the base retrieved all the copies of the press release from a nearby radio station and newspaper offices. Next day, the uh, second press release was on July 9th, which was the day after the initial press release. A second press release was issued stating the 509th Bomb Group had mistakenly identified a weather balloon as wreckage of a flying saucer. Now think about this. The 509th was one of the units that actually had the job of dropping uh, nuclear weapons. But they can't identify the difference between a weather balloon and a UFO. I have issues with that. On July 9th, as reports went out that the crashed objects were actually a weather balloon, cleanup crews were busily uh, clearing the debris. Bud Payne, a rancher at Corona, was trying to round up a stray when he was spotted by the military and carried off to Foster Ranch. Broadcaster uh, Judd Roberts and Walt uh, Whitmore were turned away as they approached the debris field. And as the wreckage was brought to the base, it was crated and stored in the hangar. And there was a very strange handling for something as common as weather balloon wreckage. But there was never any explanation given for why all this was done. Back in town, locals Walt Whitmore and Lyman Strickland saw their friend Mac Brazil, who was being escorted to the uh, Roswell Daily Record by three military officers. He had ignored Whitmore and Strickland, which was not at all like uh, Mac Brazil's uh, normal behavior. And once he got to the Roswell Daily Records office, he changed his story completely. He now claimed to have found the debris on June 14th. He also mentioned he found weather observation devices at two other locations, but uh, what he found this time was no weather balloon. And he gave an interview to the Roswell, uh, to the uh, local Roswell newspaper. It's dated July 9th. W.W. Brazil, 48 years old, Lincoln County rancher living 30 miles southeast of Corona, today told his story of finding what the Army at first described as a flying disc, but the publicity which attended his find caused him to to add that if he ever found anything short of a bomb, he sure wasn't going to say anything about it to anybody. Russell was brought to the uh, newspaper office late yesterday by W. Whitmore, radio station uh, KGFL. Had his picture taken and gave an interview to the record, and Jason uh, Callahan uh, sent here from the Albuquerque Bureau of the Associated Press to cover the story. Picture he posed for was seen out uh, sent out over the AP tele, uh, telephoto wire sending machine, especially shut up at the record office by R.D. Adair, AP wire chief, uh, sent here for the sole purpose of getting out the picture and that of the sheriff George Wilcox, and to whom uh, Brazel originally gave the information of his find. Brazel related that on June 14th, he and a year-old son Vernon were about seven or eight miles from the ranch house of the. J.B. Foster Ranch, which he operates when they uh, came upon a large area of uh, bright wreckage made up on uh, rubber strips, tinfoil, and a rather tough paper and sticks. At the time, Brazil was in a hurry to get his uh, round made, and he didn't pay much attention to it. But he did remark about what he had seen, and on July 4th, he and his wife, Vernon, and a daughter, Betty, 14, Went back to the spot and gathered up quite a bit of the debris. Next day, he first heard about the flying disc and wondered if what he'd found might be uh, the remnants of one of those. Monday, he came to 
town to sell some wool, and while there he went to see uh, Sheriff George Wilcox and whispered kind of confidential-like he might have found a flying disc. Wilcox got in touch with Roswell Army Airfield. Major Jesse Marcel and a man in plays clothes accompanied him home where they picked up the rest of the pieces of the disc and went to his home to try to reconstruct it. Well, according to Brezel, they simply could not reconstruct it at all. They tried to make a cat out of it, but um, couldn't do that and couldn't find any way to put it back together so it would all the pieces would fit. Then Major Marcel brought it to Roswell, and that was the last he heard of it until the story broke that he'd found a flying disc. Brazel said he had, didn't see it fall from the sky and didn't see it before it was torn up, so he didn't know the size or shape that it might have been. But he thought it might have been about as large as a tabletop. The balloon, which held it up, if that's what uh, was how it worked, must have been about 12 feet long, he thought. Well... Clearly, a major cover-up was underway at that point in time. Now, it's interesting, it's interesting about Face, Brazil and his story. Clearly, the cover-up was working to intimidate the witnesses. The Las Vegas Review-Journal, along with dozens of other newspapers, carried the AP story. Reports of flying saucers whizzing through the sky fell off sharply today as the Army and Navy began to concentrate a concentrated campaign to stop the rumors. Now, this is in the desert, why would the Navy be involved? The story I saw reported that uh, Army Air Force headquarters in Washington delivered a blistering rebuke to officers at Roswell. But if this was actually the case, it had little or no effect on the clear Colonel, uh, career of Colonel Blanchard. Clearly, he was following the orders he received on how to handle the recovery of this mysterious craft. If he'd been acting on his own, his military record never been as stellar as it later seemed to be. In fact, Colonel William... Butch Blanchard was, according to many of the Roswell books, a key player behind the scenes in the recovery of the Roswell disc and in the development of the cover-up conspiracy that many maintain still exists today. If anybody was to be punished for the story, Blanchard would be the obvious person to feel the wrath of the Department of Defense as he was the one that personally authorized the press release to be sent out. In fact, in the August-September 1992 issue of the Air and Space Smithsonian Magazine, Frank uh, Kuznick uh, wrote, Before my trip to Wright-Patterson, I tracked down Walter Hout, the retired base public information officer who wrote the infamous press release and asked him if he ever actually saw the wreckage. He said no, and I feel like an idiot every time somebody asks me about it. I got a um, call from the base commander who basically dictated what was in the press release. If the Department of Defense was angry at the participants in the flying saucer incident, why was nobody's career damaged? Branchard, a West Point uh, graduate, was rapidly uh, rose rapidly through the ranks during World War II, and by '47, was considered a rising star in the Army Air Corps. Such a fiasco as Roswell should have derailed his career, but rather than any permanent damage, by 1966, he was a four-star general, vice chief of staff, and a sure bet to be appointed to serve on the Joint Chiefs. Unfortunately for his career aspirations, he died from a massive heart attack at his desk at the Pentagon, cutting short what was clearly an illustrious career. But you have to ask yourself, the press release that Blanchard dictated to Lieutenant Hout was a major error on his part. How is it the colonel went on to become a four-star general? Screw-ups, unless they're related to somebody in uh, high up in government, do not get promoted 
then or now. Of course, now, though, uh, they quite often go on to become president. Despite his many later achievements in the Air Force, Blanchard is best known today as a commanding officer of the 509th Bomb Wing in the Roswell Army Air Force Base during the Roswell Incident. Now, the Roswell Incident first became public when the now-famous press release was sent out by the Public Information Officer, Lieutenant Walter Hout, June 8, 1947. It's widely believed by many UFO researchers Colonel Blanchard had been ordered by the Pentagon to issue the news released as part of a carefully calculated plan to cover up the recovery of a real extraterrestrial spaceship and its alien crew. The news of a captured flying disc prompted many reporters to try and contact Blanchard for comments, but all they got from his office during the afternoon of July 8th was no further details available. Well, by late afternoon, July 8th, callers to the office of Colonel Blanchard were told he'd left on leave. Roswell proponents have long claimed this leave was just a ruse to get Blanchard out of the limelight while the he commanded the effort to complete the recovery efforts and send the debris and the bodies to more secure areas. This claim is based on surmise and comments from some, but not all, of the witnesses interviewed by various researchers. Another key player in the Roswell saga was Major Jesse Marcel. If he was one of those who was reprimanded for the flying saucer story, his career certainly didn't suffer for it. Having served as an officer in the Army for a number of years, I'm here to tell you if you screw up to the point the generals have to get involved to correct the issue, your career suffers and suffers big time. But let's look at Major Jesse Marcel and his career. Jesse Antoine Marcel was born May 27, 1907, to Theo and Adelaide Marcel in Terrebonne Parish, Louisiana. Spent his whole youth there as he graduated from Terrebonne High School. After high school, he worked as a draftsman for the Louisiana Department of Transportation, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and then for the Shell Oil Company as a cartographer specializing in making maps from aerial photography. Along the way, he served two three-year enlistments in the National Guard in Louisiana from 1925 to 28, and in Texas from 36 to 39. In his family... His wife and one son, Jesse E. Marcel Jr., were living in uh, Houston, Texas when World War II broke out. And in March of 42, at the age of 35, he applied for and was given a commission as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army Air Force. Based on his experience in mapping and analyzing aerial photography, the Army sent him off to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, for training as a combat photo interpreter and intelligence officer. Jesse did well in the intelligence school, well enough that his next assignment was to be an instructor at his that school. Eventually, the Army granted his request for combat, and October 43, First Lieutenant Jesse Marcel found himself assigned to the 5th Bomber Command in the Southwest Pacific. For the next two years, he fought the war, first as a squadron intelligence officer and then a group intelligence officer participating in several campaigns at actually resulted in the retaking of the Philippine Islands. During his combat tour, he performed his duties well. His commanders rewarded his work and abilities with two air medals, the Bronze Star promotion to captain and into major in May of 45. Just before the dropping of the atomic bomb, he was sent back to the States to get training in the use of airborne terrain mapping radar systems. With the war over, he was reassigned in January '46 to the 509th uh, Composite Group at the uh, Roswell Army Air Force Base. 
The 509th later became the 509th Bombing Group, and then with the separation of the Army Air Corps and, and as the U.S. Uh, Air Force, the 509th Bombing Wing. July 47, Marcel briefly found himself the center of attention when he brought in the debris of a flying disc that Mac Brazil found on the Foster Ranch. At this point, he should have been forced to resign, transferred to a backwater assignment as a result of the flying disc story, if in fact it was uh, frowned on by his superiors. Instead, he was transferred to the Strategic Air Command, where he eventually put in charge of a Pentagon briefing room for the Air Force Office of Atomic Energy. There, his responsibilities were to make sure the materials, charts, and illustrations, what have you, were produced and ready on schedule and maintain the organization of the briefing room staff. If he was being punished for his part in the Rivals Royal UFO story, his career certainly didn't show it. January 49, he signed a statement that he fully intended to continue his career in the Air Force, but the following year he got word that his elderly mother required assistance that his sister couldn't provide. So his request for hardship release from active duty was actually granted. In July of 1950, he returned to Huma, Louisiana. There he threw, uh, drew on his longtime hobby in ham radio to become uh, an electronics repairman specializing in televisions, transmitters, and receivers. When he was released from active duty, his commission, he was a lieutenant colonel, so he wasn't blacklisted for promotion was transferred to the reserves, and he eventually got his full discharge in 1958. He died in 1986 at the age of 79. In spite of his claims, he was under orders to never, ever talk about his role in the alien uh, disc recovery. Occasionally, he did let on to others that he'd been once involved in that UFO recovery. In 1978, one of his ham radio correspondents mentioned Jesse's story to Stanton Friedman, a UFO researcher and I knew him a long time. He was a true gentleman, and this led to him telling the story of the flying disc to the world. As to whether or not there was a government cover-up, no less than authority than Brigadier General Thomas Dubois signed an affidavit September 2001, which confirmed there was, in fact, a cover-up. In the affidavit, he stated, after the plane from Roswell arrived with the material, I asked the base commander to personally transport it to a B-26 to Major General McMullen in Washington, D.C. Entire operation was conducted under the strictest secrecy. Well, the balloon explanation for the material was a cover story to divert the attention of the press. So while there was a number of questions still to be answered about Roswell, and there seems to be little question about the facts that a crash did, in fact, take place. However, the idea this doesn't mean that Roswell was the only crash site of a UFO in the world, or even in the U.S., or even in New Mexico. Actually, there have been several crashes of unidentified flying objects in the southwest region that have all been called uh, either hoaxes or misidentifications. Apparently, the military would have everybody believed that a civilian can't identify a crashed flying saucer. And neither can a highly trained intelligence officer assigned to a unit that has the duty of dropping atomic weapons. It's to note the military has tried to convince the news media from the, that day forward that the object found near Roswell was nothing more than a weather balloon. However, the evidence and numerous witness statements just don't support this premise. You know, there's been a great deal of information that's come to light over the years regarding Roswell and the aftermath. Actually, witnesses who've never come forward due to being terrified as 
the warning given them by the U.S. military. I know of two who admit that they were uh, they're working with Mike Brazel, but that they absolutely refused to discuss the situation. I was recently made privy to some information about the photos taken of Major Marcel and General Ramey. I'm going to share for the first time here. Now, this was the famous photo taken of General Ramey inspecting the wreckage. As you can expect, these initial photos taken of some of the Roswell debris or have caused a bit of confusion about the whole thing. Various conflicting statements about these photos have sent researchers running in various directions. Now, some of the principal people involved in taking these photos are still alive, and one of the most interesting individuals is J. Bond Johnson, one of the civilian photographers. According to his story, on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 8, 1947, Johnson, then a young reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, was told to go out to General Ramey's office with his camera and take some pictures. When he got to the general's office, he said he saw the floor covered with debris of some kind. Johnson used a speed graphic camera and took a total of eight photos on the two-sided film plates. And he stated the debris was pretty plain-looking and not very exotic, which led many critics to claim it couldn't possibly come from a high-tech space-traveling vehicle. However, it has to be remembered the Mars rover and the lunar lander are pretty ordinary-looking. One of them crashed, they'd also be looked at like a pile of ordinary junk. Johnson later became Colonel Bond Johnson and served four tours of duty in the Pentagon. Also stated clearly the debris he'd photographed was not pieces of a water balloon. He also remembers that the debris filled the room with a strong burn smell. In fact, anybody who entered Ramey's office on that memorable uh, day remembers the strong odor from the debris. And Bond says the photos he took were of the real debris received from New Mexico. If there was a switch of the real wreckage for pieces of weather balloon, that switch took place after he left the office and after he took the photos. In the 1990s, almost 50 years after he took those photos, he decided to go back and look at the original photographic plates, which he still had access to. He hadn't seen the plates since that fateful day of July 8, 1947, when he developed them. He also was the last civilian to ever see the Roswell crash flying saucer debris, assuming what he saw was the real uh, debris. Left his home in uh, Southern California, went down to the University of Texas at Arlington, where the original plates had been stored. With special permission, he was able to examine the original plates and have photographic copies made from them uh, as well. Inexplicably, one of the original plates was missing, and no one knew where it was. Missing plates raised some interesting questions regarding what many believed to be a continuing cover-up. When Johnson got back to California, he invited uh, MUFON investigator Ron Rigger and Debbie Stock to uh, examine the photos he brought back. And after a thorough study, these two investigators made an amazing discovery. It had been completely overlooked by everybody for over 50 years. One of the photos clearly shows General Roger Ramey kneeling next to the debris with a piece of paper in his hand. Enlarging the photo allowed the three investigators to determine that the piece of paper held by Ramey was actually a telegram. And with careful enlargement, they were able to read parts of that telegram. And... To ensure there were no errors, Johnson, Reger, and Stock hired six separate teams of experts to blow up and examine the, the uh, telegram in Ramey's hand. And all of them pretty much concluded the same thing. The enlargements revealed that the piece of paper was a Western Union telegram. 
And besides being able to read the Western Union mark on the telegram, the telegram also mentions the victims of a second crash site. It also contains the words crash story and weather balloons. And the exact words... Okay, after a review of that telegram, it's clear there was a second crash at Magdalena, New Mexico. Now, from Amy's point of view, the fact there were two crash disks found in such a short time may have indicated there was some sort of invasion taking place. I would certainly support the fact that there was a cover of order to give the military time to find out really what was going on. Now, I've long heard about this. I'll go one more time. Civilians being threatened by the military if they talked about the crash at Roswell, but never really understood how serious this became until my short discussion with two uh, witnesses who were boys at the time and went back to Mexico to escape what they perceived as a serious threat. Both of these boys um, helped Mac Brezel around uh, his ranch. One is a relative of a friend of my wife's, and he has never returned to this country as a result of the threats he received from uh, the military. And after some digging, I, I discovered the following. Even though the U.S. military continued to tell the world that nothing had happened at Roswell, over the next several months following the crash, military personnel and civilians, including women and children, were threatened with death by members of the U.S. military if they spoke about what they saw at Roswell. And many, many civilians have made sworn affidavits stating U.S. military officers threatened them Overtly, boldly, and face-to-face. Now, this is chilling to hear. These threats come at a scant two years after the U.S. defeated Hitler in World War II. Even when fighting against Hitler, private citizens and children were not threatened with death if they spoke to a fellow countryman, but here in Roswell, they were. All for a weather balloon? I don't think that story really holds up much anymore. And while people are certainly capable of making up weird stories, what reason would a mother have for falsely stating her children were threatened with murder by soldiers of her own country? And there are many women who have made such statements about the incidents at Roswell. Even the most hardened police officers will tell you that suspects will say anything and witnesses may be unclear on what they saw, but people who aren't involved in criminal activity never make up threats. It just doesn't happen. But I've got a news story that's a sample of the stories that came out after Roswell. Now, what's interesting is it wasn't just the ranchers and other residents who were threatened to keep their mouth shut. Even law enforcement officers were told that their lives and their families' lives would be in jeopardy if they talked about the Roswell incident. Military officers made it clear that uh, they were willing to murder women and children in retaliation for information being leaked. Now, does it seem logical that all this will be done for a mere weather balloon? Some of the reports make it sound like the military is using Gestapo tactics to keep the citizens of Roswell under control. So at this point, you have to ask yourself what the military was so scared about. Now, Glenn Dennis, the young mortician who'd been ordered to deliver child-sized coffins to Roswell Army Air Force Base, uh, morgue, and was visiting a friend at the Roswell Army Airfield Hospital when he saw what he believes to be two alien bodies. He reported two military officers told him, if you open your mouth, we'll be picking your bones out of the sand. Those were Army officers telling him that. According to Inez Wilcox, the wife of Sheriff George Wilcox, in a discussion with her granddaughter, Barbara Duger, 
Military police came to the jail and told both Sheriff Wilcox and his wife if they ever told anybody anything about the incident, not only would they be killed, but their entire family would be killed. According to Frankie Rowe, a child who had seen some of the metal, the military came to our house and they basically threatened us if we said anything about it. They're going to take mother away and they were going to take daddy away if we opened our mouth about anything. Another guy was standing beside him with his rifle at half-mast, holding it pointed uh, up right in front of their bodies. According to Helen Cahill, sister of Frankie Rowe, and a signed affidavit dated November 22, 1993, my sister Frankie told me her experiences sometime in the early 1960s. She told me about sitting around the table in 1947 and being threatened. My sister also mentioned seeing the material that ran like water. And Frankie Rowe, in an affidavit signed November 22, 1993, said a few days later, several military personnel visited the house. I was questioned about the piece of metal I'd seen. I was told if I ever talked about it, I'd be taken out into the desert and never to return. Or that my mother and father would be taken to Orchard Park, a former POW camp. According to Roy Danzer, a local plumber who reported he'd seen a still living but clearly dying alien on a stretcher at the base hospital, military officers had also threatened him. He said they told him, we'll know if you talk, and we'll know who you talk to, and all you will simply disappear. So forget everything you saw, and hightail it out of here before somebody else sees you and wants to make sure you stay silent. Going to Sadly Dwyer, Dan Dwyer's daughter, military personnel told her, if I didn't forget what my father had told me. Me and the rest of my family would simply disappear into the desert. Now these reports just came from those who... We're not afraid to talk, so it makes you wonder what threats were used for the ones that haven't come forward. And why would our government condone the threatening of civilians with uh, bodily harm for talking about what they'd seen, if it was just a weather balloon? Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more. Well, my studio's falling apart. About the day after Roswell and beyond Roswell. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.